Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. Every June, many people will wait with bated breath for the Supreme Court to issue opinions on some of the most important and pressing legal issues of the times. When they issue, those opinions garner significant media coverage. Some reverberate throughout the country and have enormous social and cultural implications like Obergefell versus Hodges, the decision that recognized a constitutional right for gay couples to marry. Far less attention has been paid to the part of the court's adjudicative business that does not result in merits opinions. This business includes petitions for review, applications for stays and other rulings. Because this part of the court's business is both less understood and less transparent, it has been called the court's shadow docket. What is this shadow docket and why is it important? Here to help me with that question is my guest, Steve Loddick, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott, great to be with you. Tell me first about the more familiar Supreme Court dockets. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we, we're all used to the, the sort of the, the drumbeat of major Supreme Court decisions that come down May, June, even early July each year, you know, where what the court is doing is basically handing down lengthy, reasoned, written opinions um, in cases that were argued some months ago. And by the time we get those decisions, those cases have had at least two rounds of briefing in the Supreme Court. They've been argued at least once. The justices have had a whole lot of time to polish their opinions. Um, and so it really gets sort of the, the full Monty, if you will, the full treatment um, from the court so that, you know, right or wrong, we like it or we don't like it, at least we have a pretty good feel for why the justices did what they did. Um, and that's, you know, probably about 65 to 70 cases per year these days. Um, a lot fewer than it used to be, but still, you know, a pretty good chunk of cases each term. Okay, so then what is the shadow docket and how does it differ from the court's other docket? Well, I mean, so the, you know, the shadow docket, it, the shadow docket is basically everything else. Um, and most of that is anodyne. I mean, most of that is, you know, things nobody cares about besides the lawyers to a case. Um, applications for more time to file a brief. Request by the federal government to participate as a friend of the court, um, you know, sort of those kinds of things. But we've seen an uptick in the last three, four, or five years um, in three kinds of orders on the shadow docket where the court has been more active. Um, one has been, as you say, um, requests for stays, where a party that lost below, oftentimes a state or federal government party, um, is asking the Supreme Court to put that decision on hold while the appellate process works its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, one is applications for injunctions directly, um, where the justices are being asked to reach out and block state action pending appeal when the lower courts wouldn't. We've seen a lot of those, for example, in COVID-related cases. Um, and then one is where lower courts have themselves issued stays of execution in capital cases, and where the Supreme Court is actually lifting those stays. So, you know, we've seen a real uptick in the last few years, what we might call status quo altering rulings on the shadow docket, um, where it's not just that the court is doing something quietly that nobody cares about or is turning away some extraordinary application, it's where the court is using the shadow docket to dramatically change what is happening on the ground, either in a lawsuit or in reality or increasingly both. Can you give me an example of a recent shadow docket decision? 
Yeah, I mean, so at the time we're recording this, you know, we've just had a series of decisions from the Supreme Court about California's um, restrictions on in-person religious worship um, related to COVID, where um, efforts to have those restrictions at either the state or county level blocked largely failed in the lower courts and where the litigants went to the Supreme Court um, and the Supreme Court issued a series of mostly unexplained decisions um, blocking first the statewide restrictions and then Santa Clara County's restrictions and still others where, you know, these cases were not fully briefed in the Supreme Court. They were never argued to the Supreme Court where the orders the Supreme Court handed down were accompanied by no majority opinion. They were just one sentence or two sentence summary orders um, where maybe you had a couple of concurring opinions from justices, but there was no effort on the court's part to articulate what it was doing or why and where the orders came down late in the afternoon on a Friday night. Um, so like, you know, late in the day on a Friday. So where, where there's not the usual sort of formality and protocol to handle down the decision. And yet these orders had obviously enormous effects by, you know, putting on hold um, policies at the statewide level in the biggest state in the country, where, you know, in effect, the Supreme Court saying, we are not going to allow these policies to go into effect, even though we have not yet ultimately ruled on whether they're constitutional. We've not yet had that opportunity. And so what, what, is, what should be concerning about that methodology the court is using for its shadow docket? Well, I think there are a couple of different things. I mean, so the first is just the inscrutability of it. Um, so, you know, whether you are a state official trying to figure out what the law is or a lower court trying to figure out what precedents you're bound by, um, you know, when the Supreme Court hands down these fairly significant decisions and doesn't bother to explain itself, these officials, these lower courts are left to guess. Um, and so just from the very, you know, all other things being equal, the shadow dock is problematic at the very least from the perspective of just not giving us any insight into why. Um, what exactly was the infirmity in California's indoor worship restrictions? Why um, in the Santa Clara case, where the, where the county had gone out of its way to say, here's how our restrictions are different from the states, why did that not convince the justices? They don't tell us. Um, and if they don't tell us, that means they're also not telling the relevant state actors, they're not telling the lower courts. So that's the first problem. Um, the second is um, we don't even necessarily know what the vote count is and sort of who the justices are who are doing this. So as opposed to on the merits docket, where we always know which justices are in the majority and which are in the dissent, um, we often have no idea who's in the majority and who's in the dissent in shadow docket orders because they're unsigned. And so unless you know four justices publicly note a dissent, we're only guessing as to whether the vote was five to th four, six to three. Um, and that may sound like not a big deal, but consider a capital case from Alabama earlier this year where four justices publicly noted that they were concurring in the court's order, which was leaving a lower court injunction of the execution in place. Three publicly noted dissents. And so we know that one of the other two justices, either Justice Alito or Justice Gorsuch, joined the four publicly concurring justices but we don't know which one and we don't know why. Um, and so again, it's sort of like a lack of transparency. And this leads to the third problem, um, which is just that eventually you start to have real legitimacy concerns because if part of what makes the Supreme Court legitimate is the notion that they are handing down reasoned, principled legal rationales that we might not agree with, but that we can at least follow, when the court is affecting so much behavior through unsigned, unexplained opinions, you know, I think that really gives rise to at least the specter 
even if not the you know reality, um, that the court is acting not in a way we expect a court to act, that the court's acting in a way that's more political. We've seen that these cases have actually been much more sharply political than case on the court's merit stop it. So I just think all things being equal, it's not a good look for the Supreme Court. And, and I think the real part, the real problem here is it's not necessary. So there are genuine emergencies. You know, there will be cases where the night a prisoner is scheduled to be executed, there's a last minute fight over a stay of execution. That obviously is going to require a shadow docket-like procedure. It's going to have to be resolved expeditiously. But some of these COVID cases, it took weeks to brief them. Um, there's one case involving um, an FDA regulation about the dispensation of mifeprestone, um, an abortion-related uh, me uh, medicine, um, where the briefing was complete in August and the court didn't rule on the emergency application until January. Um, and so I think you know there's there's sort of both the downsides of more and more big decisions being handled this way and the lack of necessity for more and more of these big cases to be handled this way. And I think when you add those together, that's why you're seeing so much concern about the rise of the shadow docket. So the, the concerns are increasing in recent years? I think so. I mean, and I think that they're increasing in proportion to how much more the court is using the shadow docket, again, for the three things we talked about, for the three status quo altering types of rulings, where I think, you know, his, I mean, there's always been a shadow docket as long as there's been a Supreme Court. Um, there've always been emergency applications uh, as long as we've had modern, you know, appellate procedures. I think what's really been the big shift, Scott, in the last two or three years has been how much more often the court on the shadow docket is changing the status quo. Um, and we can actually trace that pretty directly to Justice Kennedy's departure and his replacement by Justice Kavanaugh, where, you know, I think for better or for worse, Justice Kennedy may not have been a moderate, but I think he was a moderating influence on both of the sort of blocks of justices to, to either side. Um, and I think that with that moderating influence gone, the sort of the breaks are off. And I think the court is much less reluctant to resort to unusual and extraordinary forms of procedure um, than it might have been during, you know, when he was still the median, the median vote. So if you had a crystal ball, uh, what would, do you think you'd see as the worst case scenario for where the shadow docket might head in the future? Well, I mean, I think the worst case scenario is just a, a, a scenario in which the court is just completely loses track of why it limits emergency relief in the first place and where the court is increasingly issuing what are basically de facto merits rulings on the shadow docket in context where they're not well explained. Um, and that what that will do in the aggregate over time is it will one cause massive confusion in the lower courts and among the relevant actors with regard to what the law is. But two, it will also, I think, raise yet further legitimacy concerns and objections. And so, you know, if and when Congress actually seriously starts talking about court reform, you know, I think the shadow docket will be part of the conversation, not necessarily, not necessarily because it's the result in these cases that bother folks like me, because, you know, the reality is the Supreme Court's going to do what's going to do. Um, but because it seems like the procedural um, shortcuts that the court is taking um, in the aggregate give rise to just all of these potentially unfair but unrebuttable charges about the court um, acting in ways that are not what we expect of the highest court in the land. So do you have some ideas for plausible shadow docket reforms that you think should be considered? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the most, 
the easiest way for this to be fixed would be for the Supreme Court to fix it itself, assuming that's not going to happen. So, you know, I think one of the things that Congress should be talking about is taking pressure off of the shadow docket. So if there are particular classes of cases that have really motivated the justices to act this way, maybe find other ways of getting them to the Supreme Court faster. Um, so if part of this is, as some have claimed, although I think it's not quite um, uh, a satisfying explanation. If part of this is a response to the uptick in so-called nationwide injunctions, well, there are ways to actually alleviate those pressures short of having the Supreme Court decide you know, these stay applications. You could allow for the transfer um, of any case seeking a nationwide injunction to the DC District Court, the DC Circuit. You could have an expedited process for appealing that to the Supreme Court. Um, if the concern is death penalty cases, you could create a procedure for expedited review of method of execution challenges in capital cases. Um, as, you know, there's lots Congress can do short of things that I'd get nervous about. Like I'd, I'd be wary, for example, if Congress says, dear Supreme Court, you must write at least five pages or you must publish the vote count. Like I think that's probably a bridge too far, at least normatively, if not constitutionally, but, you know, Scott, as you know, Congress regulates standards of review all the time. Um, Congress, you know, changes and alters and tweaks appellate jurisdiction to respond to shifting litigation pressures all the time. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the, the conversation I hope we have is not necessarily one where my views win. It's where we are all like coming to terms with why this is a really important part of the court's work. Um, and where I think maybe we start wondering if Congress basically just totally giving the Supreme Court complete power over its docket, which has been the law for the better part of the last 33 years, is maybe not the best idea and is something Congress ought to start thinking about ways of reclaiming. Steve, uh, thanks so much for being on the show and for helping us understand the court's shadow docket. Thank you, great to be with you. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.ucastings.edu CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.